This is the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 40. I'm your host, Dill, and today we welcome our very special guest, Sam Farrar, who plays samples, keys, acoustic guitar, and percussion for the pop rock juggernaut Maroon 5. Sam hails from a musical family and landed his first record deal while still in his teens with the band Phantom Planet. Since then, he's become a well-regarded songwriter and producer who's worked with Sarah Bareilles, Gomez, Daryl Hall, and Maroon 5, which eventually led to him touring with them starting in 2012 and continues to this day. I sat backstage with Sam hours before he and his band played before 15,000 fans, and our conversation goes a little something like this. I have a lately I've had a thread that's straight from that. It's it's the thread. I guess it's like friends of Daryl. That's Daryl Hall. Yeah, like he he keeps coming up, and I saw that you you had you recorded with him. Yeah, I worked with him for like three days. It was definitely the most awkward three days I've ever like <laughs> that I've ever had to deal with because that was early on. I, I write and produce when I'm home, you know, and um, they uh, my management who managed Maroon at the time and also was managing my writing career said that uh, Daryl really likes Maroon 5 and was you know wants to work with some of the guys that they work with and they kind of suggest me I was so kind of new at it at that point right. I'm like I was definitely like a laptop producer kind of guy I mean I've been in the studio plenty of times but um, I don't know I basically was like alright I'll try it and I really shouldn't have because <laughs> I went there and I was like so overwhelmed so what? What it, I um, mean, it, it's it's funny though. Like for the layman, what's it like? I mean, you guys just get so that studio was, together and yeah, you, you he, meet and he lives um, I think like outside of Connecticut. I think it was up in Connecticut, if I remember correctly, and in the middle of nowhere. And he's got a little studio, and he's got his en- he got an engineer, um, and they were just working on songs, and they just kind of had me come in, and I, I guess they wanted me to like add the modern production to right. it that I was trying. To, you know, trying my hand at for a while, and um, I, I don't know. I don't know if they got anything good out <laughs> of that trip, but it was an experience. Like I hung out, we hung out together, and I worked on some songs. I played some bass on some stuff. I did some drum programming. Um, kind of befriended the guitar player that plays with them, and we, you know, it was an interesting experience. But like, I was not ready for it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I really had to. Be, he, someone like him, is such a strong personality. Um, surrounded, like. I, this is not bashing in any way, but he's got right. a lot of yes people around him. Yeah. And uh, I needed to be, I needed to come in and, you know, try and like throw down some ideas. And I just was kind of too chicken to yeah. do it. So. But it's terrible. I was like, uh, what, you know, I wasn't ready for it. But yeah. Anyway. I mean, I always project as like, yeah, I would, I would be, I would be nervous as hell. But yeah. I mean, I worship Hall enough. So, you know what I mean? It's crazy that I was there. But anyway, fun experience. So. Well, like I said, it's, uh, it's become a recurring theme, so I, yeah. uh, it was funny that I saw that. Now, backing up to your humble beginnings, you're you're from a music musical family, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, very much so. Um, your dad did he he wrote for Olivia Newton John? A lot of it, yeah. I'd so say does he did he write the hits? He wrote a lot of the hits, yeah. Did he because it's I, I, he wrote uh, "You're the One That I Want," "Elvis Devoted to You," "Magic," "Suddenly," uh, uh, "Make a Move on Me," uh, "I Honestly Love You." Did he work on the rock album, Totally Hot? Yeah. <laughs> if, if he wasn't writing it, he was producing it. Okay. He did a lot of it. It's funny. She was my first concert ever. My parents took me. It was her and uh, Jim Stafford. That's you know that? Yeah. Spiders and Snakes. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, she's lovely. She's the sweetest person ever. It's, it was great that 
like that's that was his career is like hanging out with this amazing woman and um he was very very good at it and very successful at it so that was that was definitely my role model so you, and then my mom before that was a was her singing partner in a tv show i'm like my pat uh pat carroll and olivia newton john were like the go show kind of girls down oh, no, in australia what? and my dad was the band okay that's how they all met so yeah it's been <laughs> that's all that's all we know how to do need you know like there's never been any like you should be a lawyer, or you should, be a doctor, <laughs> or, or you should try this. Yeah, you need a fallback plan. They never. I will say they never pushed music on me, but it was like, it's just one of those things where it's like it's just a, around and and you love it, and it's like yeah, I'll try that. Now, were you self-taught and absorbing everything, or did, was there a point that you did take lessons? I think or, I took a, maybe one or two guitar lessons, but I, this has come up a few times recently with these kids that come to you and say, "How do you, how do you get good guitar? How do you, you know, what did you do when you were young?" And I was like. My answer to that is I literally found a friend that played guitar and we just learned songs. We just, we were, when we were coming up, this is like 91, 92, probably. It was Nirvana, Green Day, Pearl Jam, okay, great. Seattle, a lot of guitars and weird songs with crazy lyrics, Soundgarden, you know what I mean? I think the first riff I ever learned was um, Outshined, which is 7 4. You know, like, but there was just really great guitar riffs and things. So it was very easy to just sit there and like learn these riffs and learn songs and that's how I became a guitar player and then eventually a bass player and um, I never really took lessons it's weird yeah but, but it is but you've asked James in, from Maroon he, he would be like you know I, I studied jazz guitar and I did this and he was much more clinical about it so there's definitely two routes you can take yeah for sure I've, I took I took the let's just learn a lot, a lot of songs well so. nat- natural talent and osmosis and you know DNA I, I mean, I, I hope so. I hope if I can have a fifth of the talent my dad's got, that'd be awesome. Now, did you work? Have you? Did you guys work together? Did you work on a Christmas LP at one point? Who, me, me and my dad. No. Yeah. Um, or did you work with Olivia and John? I and I helped him. Yeah, I helped him track a song, put some bass on it and stuff. A song that was like a, a Travolta and Olivia duo. Um, I can't remember how it went, but my dad just asked me to play some bass and do some programming for it. Okay. But, yeah, we've we've tried a couple times, but. He's so much more advanced than I am. Right. He's the kind of guy that current songwriting is like four chords, and he's the kind of guy that's got like nineteen chords before the chorus hits, kind of thing. <laughs> and he's just so melodic, and and his structures are so beautiful and so well thought out that it's a little hard for me to keep up with them. <laughs> yeah. I'm much more of like an, a general vibe of a great beat, and um, uh, like I'm obsessed with hip hop and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I don't know. I tend to be more simple. And our brains don't necessarily. Does match. he? Does he appreciate <laughs> modern music? Like this is my dad's number one thing is feel. Like he, lo- if the song's got a good feel, he doesn't care what it is. Yeah. And a lot of modern music has really good feel. So, and and sounds great. And, and you play it loud, and the bass is off. You know, I think when they were grown, when they were making music, it was uh, the level of engineering was great. But now, I mean, you can make really good sounding records on a laptop. Yeah. And. Um, there's, uh, I think he's very impressed on how good you can make it sound now. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. Did, so did you grow up around a studio? Were you in, yeah, he you always had a studio. He had a great studio at our house um, where I, you know, I grew up until I was about 18. He had an amazing studio. Um, huge live room and a 72-channel board and the, the whole, you know, it was an epic studio. He recorded a lot of records there. And then when he moved, when he moved to, um, they moved out to the Malibu and the beach and it, he kind of made it just a, more of a smaller writing room but there's always been a studio in our house that's for sure yeah um so let's get into uh phantom planet um mm-hmm. 
did that happen relatively early, teenage years, like oh, 16? 16. Okay. Yeah, I was the only one I could drive when we started. Was it, um, did it take off fast, or was it a slow burn? Yeah, I mean, b- back then, um, cool kids doing cool music uh, was attractive to labels. They were like, oh, cool, let's sign you guys, you know, let's spend a couple hundred grand making a record, and they, you know, they had money back then, so um, we got... S- we got snatched up pretty quick by Geffen. We had a, a, a really good guy, Dan Field, managing us, and he knew a bunch of cool people. Spike Jones helped us do a lot of photos and stuff. We, we were like, we had just a really cool crew around us. Um, so things happened somewhat fast, but I, I wouldn't say we really got going until um, like we got dropped from Geffen, moved to Interscope, got dropped from Interscope. And then went to Sony, and then that's when we released California. Right, and then it got much more fun. Yeah. So in the early days, were you? Um, was there any van tours or any of these? You know, yeah, yeah, these... sure. We did plenty of them, and um, I'd say the first, the only reason we went to a bus at one point was because the drives were getting so long; it was actually dangerous for us to do them. But um, you don't really. We just didn't make any money, or as much, I should say. But yeah, the van tour thing is. I miss it. Like that's to me was the most fun you can have. Yeah. Um, but it's also when you're that young, it's we have the energy. Very for it. charming. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and, you, and we liked get you know driving until five in the morning and finding a shitty Holiday Inn and um, waking up at eleven and finishing the drive, showing up for the show, playing. You know, it, it was nonstop. But you have the energy for it. Yeah. And so um, now was that pre-label at this point? No, we, we got signed when we were seventeen. We, we were super young when we got signed. I remember leaving so all your road work came under like a labels we had a little bit of help yes always which was great Um, it got oddly enough it got harder later for us because we started off pretty strong and California did really well and even before it we had help Um, it got harder when the streaming stuff started happening and we put out a record I guess it would be before that we put out Raise the Dead the last record we put out and there was no support, and we were on Field by Ramen, and it was like, oh, you have to go back to a van. And I was, yeah, I was going to say, I was 33 30. at that point, <laughs> yeah. or maybe thir- 31, somewhere in there. And that's what kind of drew, drew me over the edge. It's like, I don't know if I can do this anymore because your body just can't handle it. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I was, I was literally tour managing, counting the merch, driving, and setting up all the hotels because some, somehow I'm, I was the most responsible in the band, which is really fun. And uh, we had one guitar tech with us, and I'm, we were like, early 30s you know and eventually I was like I can't do this more and um, that's that stuff because it's too exhausting so. now in your high point you mentioned California that that was kind of a slow burn I read that you guys were on the road for literally 18 months and that, oh, yeah. did, it, did it take the TV show to kind of give that a it was second kind of a, win it or? was amazing because what what happens we made a great video first um, with Roman Coppola and that video back on I don't know if you remember MTV 2 um, yeah. And they actually played a lot of videos, which was great. And our video did really well there. And it started showing up. Um, it started making people show up to our shows. And I remember halfway, th- we did a tour with Incubus, where we opened for Incubus. That got us a ton of, and that was a huge arena tour. And then the next tour, California was starting to do better. And uh, we were selling out, you know, 500 to 1,000 sort of seater places all around the country, which is great. And then after that, the TV show started breaking and we started getting offers to play colleges and you know mm-hmm. so within about a two or three year window of touring and 
the MTV2 and the TV, TV show all sort of hitting at the same time. It was great. We had a really good run. And then put out a record that no one liked. <laughs> so there we go. Um, a, a lot of times I get into with my guests that, you know, they, they're, they're kind of naive to the business. But you, since you kind of grew up in the business, did your dad have advice or, did, you know, could he guide you like this is what you're getting into this is how it's going to work and this is how you know yes yes no he could he definitely was helpful on the um writing production that side of stuff um song splits you know just the business side of things was cool he didn't tour he didn't he never liked touring he didn't like playing in front of people he was much more comfortable in the studio so most of my most of my experience was that you know i mean like how to handle being on the road getting better live all that kind of stuff which he, um, yeah, that wasn't his specialty. His specialty was killing it in the studio. Mm-hmm. So, um, anytime I ever asked, he was always, he would always offer whatever he could. But he was good about like not, not pushing it on me, not forcing his own opinions. He loved, he loves watching his kids develop their own way. I think that makes him really happy. So, right. Yeah. Does he know any of these players? I mean, you mentioned Geffen and you know Jimmy Iovine and. He met Jimmy. He met them all when he was back in the day, of course. Yeah, um, and he had various opinions about all of them. <laughs> but, uh, but my dad's a lovely guy. Like he's super humble and cool, and you know, I don't think he would make an enemy anywhere. So, right. Yeah, he was really good at what he did. <laughs> um, what were some of the opportunities that you you look back on fondly? I know one of them was a uh, opening for Elvis Costello. Oh, that was awesome. Yeah, that was right at the pinnacle of um, sort of figuring out my taste in, in music I don't know if that I, I liked a lot of bad stuff when I was growing up and went right about then Alex our singer kind of clued me into how good Elvis was and and literally like the next couple weeks after that we like got the tour and I was like oh my god this is crazy <laughs> it was so fun what do you learn from someone like him um a lot uh, his biggest talent to me is his lyrics so just being able to hear him sing these words every night I don't know, just really inspiring. But his band is so good. The, the the arrangement, right? The live arrangement of some of those songs is so. They were so good. Pete Thomas is like ridiculous. And also, um, did you do a stint with Sting? Yeah, we opened for Sting on a college tour, which is really crazy. On a college tour, wow. Yeah, Seems and like he oddly was... enough, um, he would, he did a college tour where he's playing like the hits, the older stuff. Even though he still played a lot of the newer stuff too, and. I was kind of open for a little more of the police stuff, but um, Josh Freeze was drumming, who was a good friend of ours. So it was, it was really fun. And um, funny story is I, we had a day off in Chicago, and Maroon was playing. This is before, obviously way before I joined them. And Maroon was playing uh, the next night on our day off, and I brought Sting to the Maroon 5 concert, which was really funny. That's awesome. And we had a great time together, and, and they actually covered um, Message in a Bottle, I believe. For just you know, in honor of him being there, which is funny. Yeah, it's great. I uh, I got to get Josh Freeze on the show. He, he seems Josh like a, is awesome. He seems like an interesting great dude. cat, <laughs> and he's so good. He's so talented. We had, we had to, our drummer at one point a long time ago was really sick, and he had to come up and fill in for him on a literally a twelve hour notice. Yeah, and he flew from LA to San Francisco with our set list and his like on an iPod right. and learned the whole set, played it with us for thirty minutes on soundcheck, and then played the whole show that day like, yeah. and played it so good like it was it was crazy how good he is it's so funny because you follow him on, on social and it seems like that happens a lot yeah that's his, that's his thing like, he, like yeah. he covers so much ground and he can play like so many different people that he he's the perfect guy for. I mean he's really good for the first thing he's basically uh, uh, Stuart Copeland with 
kind of better time. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, no one's going to beat yeah. Stuart Copeland. The vibes, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But well, he's, he's infamous for revving it up all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where Josh just hits the shit out of the drums yeah. evenly, you know. But um, I'm not dissing Stuart Copeland, by the way. Stuart Copeland's amazing. Um, <clears throat> Guns N' Roses? Oh, man, I forgot about that Is that one. true? Yeah, we did one. We opened for them for one show. That's funny. In Vegas. It's, it's they, funny. That it's was funny again. just look, looking around for information when I saw that. I was like, that can't be true. No, that is true. We we got a call uh, the night before saying that they did, they lost their opener notoriously because apparently they were not very nice to their openers. And we're like, we have to do that. That's ridiculous. So we got on a plane the next day and went to soundcheck. And then they didn't even have a dressing room for us. So we had to hang out in like where the sewage was outside the venue. Like it was, it was a where, where was really it? weird where, show. Where was the show? Um, Hard Rock, I think, Vegas. Okay. Yeah, it was fun. Like, we didn't get anything thrown at us, which I was really expect. To me, like, the challenge of playing, it's it's a great challenge to play in front of a crowd that you think is going to hate you. Right. Because if you can turn them, it's awesome. So, Do you tend to, it's funny, in my experience, I, got, I played CBGBs once. So what yeah. we do, we went there and we played everything super fast and super hard. Yeah. And nothing like we, yeah. we were. But for like for Guns N' Roses, did you... Did you? I think we might have tailored know? the set to maybe less of any, any sort of the slower stuff. But we were at that point playing everything pretty fast anyway. We right. kind of morphed into a punk band at some point. Um, which is, again, why kind of why I think the transition from California that period of time to the next record, which was totally different, happened while we were on tour... We got so excited about being on the road so much and playing. We just got faster and crazier and right. running into each other and breaking things. And, and then everyone's like, where did that come from? You know, what happened to this Beach Boys California sound <laughs> that we have? You know? But um, that's where we ended up, you know. But that's an interesting dynamic. That I, I, I read where it was, you know, consciously you were like, you, you, I think it might have been your singer. You wanted to not reinvent yourself, but evolve. Constantly, keep yeah. evolving. Was everyone, yeah. you know together on that or was it natural or was it a concerted well, Al- effort? Alex was our, always our leader and it was sort of whatever taste he had going. I mean, I remember when the Strokes came out that flipped him out. Like he, um, he thought it was, they were the coolest thing ever and we all did, don't get me wrong and they, sort of the attitude of it, the sort of, uh, I, don't, I don't even know what you would call it but we went and saw them at the Troubadour and it blew all of us away so I think bands like that were coming out and we're like, oh, I don't know about this like shiny pop thing that we were doing <laughs> and but it's funny because I feel like if we hadn't gotten into those kind of bands, we probably would have been a lot more successful because we probably would have made the same sort of record again. Right. But you can't help what inspires you, you know. And Alex just got on another page. And I, I listen back to the the self-titled record with Big Brat and stuff. I think that's the best record we made because it was so crazy. Like, the really cool music that no one else was kind of doing. I mean, a lot of people compared it to the strokes and things like that, but I thought we were doing some pretty cool stuff. Is it, did you record that in Buffalo? Yeah, Dave Fridman. Now, how did you go to Buffalo? <laughs> well, he he did the, he did the film Flaming Lips. Okay. And we were obsessed with the Flaming Lips. That's another one that like kind of took he, us in another even direction. Even the Flaming Lips, why did they go to Buffalo? I don't know. They must be from there, I think. I think they're from Oklahoma or somewhere like that. There was a reason, and I but, can't remember what it is. But basically, Dave and the Flaming Lips own this studio. Okay. And it's sick. It's in the middle of nowhere. Like, all, all the best gear. The sounds are incredible. I mean, all the Flaming Lips works were done there. And those are the best drum sounds I've ever heard. Like, they're so good. I, I only ask because I'm from upstate New York, so I know what it's like. So it's probably, it's actually, a, it's probably strategic that you go there. Was it winter? <laughs> actually, I then, we we then you we hunker went, down. Yeah, we went once for two. He never had any bands out there for more than two weeks because he said people start to lose their mind after two weeks. You're, like, it was four, 30 minutes to the nearest Anything. supermarket. Yeah. Right? 
So we did two weeks, and then you'd come home, and then we'd come back again and do two weeks. And I think we did it three times. And the first time it was freezing winter. We came back a couple weeks later, and it was beautiful and springy. And then I think we came back again, and it was like starting to get humid. Our, it, it was crazy how much, <laughs> the different experiences we had. But it was awesome. The, the, uh, the, there was a little college town there, and we played a show or two in the, this like terrible little dive bar, and all the kids came out. And I, I, that was a really cool period of time. That's neat. Yeah. So things start to go south. Even the industry at that point is going to yeah. hell. Yeah. Right. Digital Napster, uh, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, just at the end of when we called it was kind of when it was like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen now. But so where are you? Where's your headspace when you called it? Did you have, did you have your next move or? So a couple things happened. Uh, a couple things happened all around within a couple months that totally changed my life. Which is one, I got I got really tired. We went on tour for about two years with bands that I would I wouldn't say I just liked bands we were with they just weren't like us and we got sort of clumped into a a scene that wasn't inspiring to me uh, nothing, nothing against the bands they're all awesome people I'm still friends with a lot of them I just felt like that's not where we wanted to go so it was like kind of a painful couple years we were we were sharing sharing buses and driving in vans long distances I was really tired so uh, we had a show coming up at the Troubadour and I found out that my wife was pregnant and I also, around then, was starting to do a lot more production for Maroon. You know, I'd done a bunch already for Songs About Chain and stuff, and I worked on the next record after that, and they, they were starting to do another record, I think, hands all over. And I kind of got whispers like, you should you should work on this as much as you can, you know? And I was like, it didn't, it, I was never able to because I was on tour all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think the, like that weird combination of three things happened. I was like, I don't know if I, I don't want to do this traveling thing anymore. So we sat down in a pizza place, which is funny because we started in a pizza place. And I was just like, I need to pause. I can't do this anymore. And they all they all totally agreed. They're like, We're like thank God you said that. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, I think any of us could have said it and they'd all been right. cool. And we, again, we're not broken up. We still love each other. We've actually played together since then. We write music a lot. But it was just like, I don't want to be traveling the way we travel. I want to be a dad. I want to yeah. write music and get better at that for a while. How did your relationship with Maroon begin? You mentioned that you were working with them all the way back. To oh my god, yeah, that's from day one. Um, so our bands used to play shows together. The, I mean, when they were Cars Flowers, we right. were playing shows at the Roxy and stuff. And our both of our bands, all of us went to different schools, which was awesome when we played shows because we pull from all these different schools. You know, like uh, uh, Cars Flowers are all Brentwood. I, I went to a school called Buckley with Jacques. Uh, Alex went to a public school in, in the Palisades. Darren went to public school over here, uh, Hamilton. Uh, Jason was at when we're, I mean literally we're pulling from all types of schools which to me is one of the reasons why we did so well at the beginning and rival bands you know like let's you know let's get better than them they're right. you know, I, we went and saw them and we're like fuck and we went home and rehearsed for three hours because <laughs> they, they were so good and then apparently they came and saw us like three weeks later and said oh my god they're so so it was a great healthy like battle you know how and, did you even meet your bandmates when everyone's at a different different school uh, me and Jacques went to the same Jacques uh, went to uh, like a West LA music guitar shop and this Jason ran up to him and was like he was like shredding a solo or something you know he's like oh my god you're so good can you want to come play with our band that was and that was it like they'd already been playing together through a cousin or something and we showed up and um, Jason was, was such an interesting character Alex was the coolest kid I'd ever met you know he's like a shaved bleach blonde skater looking kid and meanwhile I was kind of I was just kind of a dork so 
I don't know. It was just an inspiring group of kids, you know. Darren had his, like, flannel on. I was like, yeah, this is going to work. <laughs> so it was cool. But, uh, yeah, and as we got older, we just stayed friends. And at some point, Adam and I moved in together with my friend Willie and my friend Savannah. And the four of us were such close friends. And I had a little studio in the back. And we used to, like, party and make music, like, all the time. And all these demos came out of it. And I'd say eight of them ended up as songs on songs about Jane, including okay. "She Will Be Loved." We demoed back there, and, and so yeah, after that we just kind of kept making music every now and then. Yeah, and then they just took off. <laughs> this is crazy. Um, I have a couple notes of some of your other side projects before you, you know, leap full time with Maroon. Um, Operation Aloha. Was that was amazing. That was what? a great trip. <laughs> that, was, that was recording in Maui. Yeah, uh, my friend Chris McCann's a photographer. Um, amazing photographer he's taken photos of my band of Maroon he's done a book for them um, and he uh, is really obsessed with Hawaii as one should be and found this like tree house in Hana um, which is on the far side of Maui it's a very wet tropical vibe I don't know if you've been to Hana it's so beautiful and we set up a little roll in 1680 and you know 12 of us just made music for a week and a half and every day it was like someone was in the hot seat I have this idea, and we would just roll with it, and by the end of it, we had an album. It was really crazy. Some really good people, like a couple of guys from Gomez, um, who I was utterly obsessed with when I, um, and still am, uh, and then a bunch of just musicians I know from L.A., mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, one of, the, one of the better experiences I've ever had recording music. It was amazing. Now, is that somewhere we can access it? Or I think is... it's on Spotify. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the songs are they're just kind of jams, you know what I mean? It's not, we didn't write anything that I, will change the world. It was just such a good vibe. Yeah, you know, and, no pressure. And I think you can hear it in the music. It, yeah. we, we just had a really good time doing it. That's and cool. there was no, there was no uh, overdubs. Like, you just had to, if you messed up, it, was, it stayed on the record, you know what I mean? <laughs> and there was a couple moments on there where all of us were like, oh, please let me fix that, please. And it's like, nope, the rest of the take's too good. So, That's awesome. Yeah. It felt like truly recording to tape, even though we were on a digital recording. I gotta check cool. that out, and that was around 2009. Is that correct? I think that was about right. That, yeah. And then a few years later, um, you and your wife got together for Bubble Bubble Strife. Is that Bubble and Strife. Yeah. Bubble and Strife. That's a playoff Bubble and Squeak, which is <laughs> leftovers. Uh, like when you make a roast, some like an English roast. Okay. The, you know the you take all the leftovers and throw it in a pan, cook it up, and serve that. That's called Bubble and Squeak, which I just thought was funny. So. And strife is a cocky word for wife. So nice. Now was any was that just an outlet or was that something you wanted to? Well, she's a great singer. See where it goes. And we always talked about making. She was in her own band for a long time, and I helped. I worked with them a lot, and uh, we just were like, how can we not try and do a husband and wife thing? So we did it, and it was fun. We waited a little too long. We recorded like four songs really quickly, and then didn't put them out for a while. And then we revisited it like a year and a half later, and finally put it out. I just think we lost like the energy for it, right? You know, and then kids came. <laughs> kids, I know. Damn kids. Um, all right, I'm sorry. We'll get we'll get back on track with Maroon. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, uh, did you work with Mutt Lang for? I yeah, know, I know that, he produced. That was the record that I was telling you about when when I right when Phantom Plan stopped is when we started working with Hands All Over, and he came aboard, and I, me and Noah, who's our producer engineer for the last couple of records now, he does all the band recordings and Adam's vocals and stuff and um, him and I basically hung out at Adam's rental house in Los Feliz same kind of thing we just 
so many demos, you know, and and sending them to Mutt and getting comments from Mutt Lang every day was crazy. <laughs> like he is the nicest dude ever. So good at what he does. I I don't know if the, maybe the, it was the wrong time for them to use him because right around then was when electronic music started taking over, and it was uh, yeah, just bad timing or something. I don't know. That that's that's the tricky thing about putting music out. It, you could write the best song ever, but if the world's not ready for it, but the trends and how yeah. they shift. Um, getting getting too much, you know, is that it's just, is it always a process of you know going into an album, you know, who's out there, who do you want to work with, and then you know once you, yeah, I mean, you know, I, w- I wasn't necessarily involved with that side of it. Okay, um, I was much, I'm just much more of a the the guy to help get ideas out for the songs and stuff. But um, from what I know, it was a. It's somewhat political, you know. You have to figure out someone who's got a good name, who's done a lot of good work, who you think will turn all your stuff around and make it better. Um, and Mutt seemed like a pretty obvious choice with his history. He'd never had a record that sold less than ten million records. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't know much about what else went into that, though. What about with, uh, with Phantom? Did would you have more of a say, or are, are you ever, are you ever in a position where you're, you're talking to? multiple producers to see what their approach is going to be and you kind of see who's yeah. on the same page when we started as I said there was more money in, in there I remember there was definitely a period of time when we could you actually would try out a producer and say you want, want, want you'd one actually, song okay. you know what I mean and you'd get a budget of you know 10, 10 grand or something like that and they would you make one song and and if it was good you'd make the record and I think we did that a few times when we were younger but a lot of it is, it's kind of crazy like you have to basically be like we're just going to do this um, not so much anymore, uh, because especially a band like Maroon, songs are written and produced so fast now that usually there's not an overall, right. there's not one producer, or very rarely these mm-hmm. days, especially in a pop in the pop world. Band world, that's something else. Pop world is, you know, there's usually 15 different producers on the record. So. Are you guys using outside writers now? Oh, yeah. I mean, just with the oh, yeah. larger scheme of Last things. couple of records, for sure. Um, and I don't know if it'll go back. I know a lot of it is the... Um, the drive to find big songs, you know, and, and so you just want to have as many just absolute smashes as possible so you can choose which ones will fit that moment, you know. Mm-hmm. And someone like Girls Like You, for example, just came along at the exact right time. You know, I didn't even think much of it when I first heard it, but now now it's like, oh my God, this is a big song. <laughs> That's funny. Now, do you, when you hear these songs, are you immediately going to feel, like you said? Is it something, you know? Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. Like that, that song does feel great. That guitar part's great, um, but all all the all the guys that are working on this stuff are so good at what they do. Mm-hmm. Like all of them feel great. All of them sound great. So it's, it gets really hard to pick like what you think is going to be really big. You know, right? How does the you know either record company or management or the people around you? How does I mean is, does it become this you know big group of people second guessing what's going to be big and a trend and you know the next the next thing you should do? Yeah, I, I don't know. That that'd be that's probably a better question for Adam um, or um, management. Or I'm not too involved with those kind of decisions with these guys. But for when it was with Phantom, for example, we were again it was sort of a different time, and we were much more of a band versus like a like a pop stardom act that the Maroons become. Um, but uh, as a band, you you just try and write as many songs as you can and play them for people and see how they react and eventually one usually rises to the top it's like that seems like something that everyone's going to get you know? mm-hmm. and that's that's basically what it was for us I don't know what they go through because there's also like 
the name recognition stuff that happens, people that have had hits in the past, whether or not, they, uh, you know, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. It must be very difficult because I thought like every song on Red Pill Blues to me sounded like it could be a single. So right, I don't know. Now, does that up your game too? Because now you have outside producers and writers. You're a producer and writer. Mm-hmm. You have outside producers and writer. Are you, you know, trying to? You want to author a lot of, you know, as much stuff as possible. I would yeah. Assume. Yeah, I'm really trying. Like as soon as I get home, the rest of my calendar year is filled with sessions with writers and producers and um, different artists, trying and trying to play the same that same game of uh, write the best song you possibly can and. With a little bit of luck, it goes big, you know. Mm-hmm. That's all I really know how to do, right. and art a little bit. And they're both extremely finicky businesses to be in, and you just got to cross your fingers that something happens. You know? Yeah, you mentioned just you know, I mean, Maroon is as big as it gets. Yeah, you know, what do you? Uh, I, I don't even know what question to ask and ask, but it's just it's so big. Like, what do you observe? I mean, you've been you've you've now been to pretty much every level. And it gets mm-hmm. to, it gets to even me looking at your tour dates. It seems like I don't know if it's logistics, but you know most people are on like three days in a row off one day. You guys seem to be on two days off, and that's. But I'm just wondering, is that like, is that just strict, strictly rigging and stuff to get the stage and the, you know, or is that just a luxury of seeing so how big you guys are? Touring schedule is, is tricky now because we're uh, with the voice with right. Adam. That that splits our tours into pieces. Um, there's obviously obviously the cost of getting things to go in the right places is crazy but I, I, a lot, honestly I think a lot of it comes down to we're getting older <laughs> and uh, singing for an hour and 45 minutes every night is really hard um, Adam warms up he's probably warming up right now he's going to warm up three times before he goes on stage and then he warms down So, and he's running around the whole time uh, Matt our drummer if you watch the show tonight is dripping by the end of the show <laughs> so I, I think it's a, it's a conscious decision to try and take it a little easy and with the scope of this, you, they can, you know, we can afford to have a day off every other day. But it's it's usually show day off, show day off, two shows day off. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. So it's you have to be efficient about it because it's expensive to be out here. But at the same time, you want to put the best show on possible. So. Right. And the scale of your production, like how long does it take to actually, if, if, if you're going to go oh, on man, tour, it's, it's, it's incredible. You should have set up a time lapse. I should have gone into that. They come in every morning at um, seven. There's thirteen. Said 15 trucks and they come in laser grid the floor send chains up pull it all up build the stage roll it out and it's so incredibly efficient to watch them do it but obviously we have the best people doing it so they're really good at it but uh, it's an incredible thing to watch and what about rehearsing for it is everything choreographed to a point where it's either lights or I don't know if you have pyro we play play basically the same set every night uh, mostly because the there's sync going to all the lights. We can't really change it up that much. Right, right. There are songs where there's no, there's some 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 stuff has tracks and things like that. But um, there's a couple moments that breathe a little more free. But yeah, we have to we have to stick to a plan. It's definitely a big deal. And but is that hard, is that hard to? How long does that take to, to come up with it? To um, learn well to learn, I guess. I mean, if, well, I mean, obviously, not, a lot of the songs aren't changing. Like, do you have production rehearsal? Oh yeah, for sure. We've had two weeks of rehearsal. Two weeks, okay. Spread out, of, you know, maybe like three days. Record a bunch of stuff. Take a break. TV stuff, whatever. Three more days, listen back. You know, there's a lot of like, it's not all straight, but um, you do have to have a pretty good idea of what you're going to play on a tour at probably about two months before you play it. Yeah, and we, you know, obviously you can push it. And we're changing things on that first show. I, I remember we went out, and we changed a whole bunch of stuff on the very first night. You know, 
because it's like, oh, that didn't work. So it's funny. When's the best time to see you guys on a tour cycle? Like, I would a say month like in? I would say about a month in, okay. or the very last nights, because you're just so happy to be done. <laughs> but like about three quarters of the way through, where you get a little burnt out, um, and you you do your best to keep going. Um, but uh, the last two nights are always really fun, and then I'd say about a couple weeks in when you. If it's sort of a fine line of like autopilot and still thinking about it, right? And which is kind of can tend to be like the most fun. But yeah, are you ending this run, uh, Madison Square Garden? Yeah, two, two nights, two dates. Well, that'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be awesome. My wife and kid are coming. So. Now, do you have being in New York? Are you guys just chock full of commitments in terms of whatever press or no? Not TV really. Or the there's, I don't think there's any press. Oh, that's good. Um, Adam might have to do a couple things here and there, but maybe James. When you reach a level like Maroon's gotten to, you don't have to do that much anymore because it's already there. And he's on a TV show all the time, right. constantly talking about what we're doing and stuff. So it's kind of built-in publicity at this point. You just kind of have to make sure this ship doesn't veer too off. You know? Right. Just keep it going. And after a show, is there like a post-game like game film? <laughs> uh, do we listen back, you mean? Well, not even listen back, but is there, there's, is there any notes or do you guys have to just communicate that you know, certain things are working, certain things aren't, or just, you Some know. people in the band, uh, we, had a, we had a board mix every night, just for us, uh, and our drummer, Matt, is obsessed with listening to him. He wants to see if there's anything to get better constantly, which is great. Um, and if he hears something, you know, he, he'll point it out to me, if, like, uh, you know, I tried something, and he's like, that didn't work, or, oh, that was great, you should do that, or... I, I don't think Adam listens back to it. Jesse might. So some, some of us in the band kind of start to pay attention to that stuff. Others are just like, let's just have fun, and go, you know what I mean? And, yeah. Everyone in the band's like, for example, all of our, um, all of our inner mixes are so different. Like what we listen to when we're playing is fascinating. That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, you guys took the time out to listen to what everyone else is doing. You can. Okay. I, I can go up right now and tour. It's amazing. The technology is great because they record the show and you can play back the show and set put your mix on and hear exactly what you did oh, and that's what cool. you're listening to. And everyone's mix <laughs> is so different. So everyone's got a very different experience up there, which is great. Well, it's interesting, as, as, as long as you've been doing this, how it's evolved, you know, the technology that's evolved. And Yeah, I love the, um, the lighting guys now. They used to have to, like, hang these lighting guys way up there, like 50 feet in the air, and they're, like, doing the spotlights and stuff. Now they just hang this computer up there, and they control it underneath the stage. Yeah, that's crazy. And I was like, things, just these things, that you know, I'm like, wow, that's great. That's a great idea. So let's get into your art. I sure. I know you... Uh, it, it's funny, you did an interview, I think it was back in March, where you told the interviewee that, well, it made it, to me it made it sound like it, it, it might be getting to be a burden to keep up with your map project. The map thing was a lot exhausting. But are you, I mean, was it because you're holding yourself to do every city, or? Yeah, I think it was a combination you, of, um, art was always something that I just did for fun, and that was, anytime you take something you do for fun, and then you try to monetize it, <laughs> it kind of becomes not that much fun anymore, right. unfortunately. So I and I was really trying hard to uh, have a, a sh like a, an art show at the end of the whole thing. So I wanted to make sure I had enough pieces, and, and I really tried to stick to the idea that I was going to do one in every city. On so by, and by the end of it, I was just like, I, I don't know if I ever want to see a band again. But the show happened. The show happened. It was great. I had a great turnout. I sold about half of my stuff, which is a lot of it to friends and things like that. But um, it felt very satisfying to have for easily what was for the first time in my life something that was just mine. I was, I was nothing I wasn't attached to other band members or a 
or, or a song that I co-wrote with someone. This was like literally just my experience, and that was very satisfying. Now, I read that the process was to get a city map mm-hmm. and kind of look at it and see what kind of comes out of it. Yeah. But what started that? Were you was it just were you looking at a city map, you know, um, for for Ernest's? I think <laughs> it was totally accidental. We were, I remember I was in um, let's see Argentina, and I drew on a uh, uh, like a placemat in the restaurant that had a couple of coffee stains on it, and I made something out of the coffee stains, right. whatever, something stupid like that. And I've always and I remember thinking like, oh, I always do this. Like I'm much more inspired by something that's got marks on it or lines or dust or like a, co- a coffee stain, whatever it is. Because it makes my brain work, like kind of kicks it in overdrive. I'm like, oh, okay. But a blank page, fuck that. <laughs> like, I, can't, I am not a fan. Sorry, I don't even know. No, it's fine. Um, there's something really intimidating about that. So even when I was a kid, when I would draw, I would just like scribble on things and then draw on top of the scribble. And so the map thing made perfect sense. I, like, I think somehow I found a map backstage. And uh, I just—I was backstage and I started scribbling and I drew a face on the map and everyone was like, oh, that's really cool. So I like, <laughs> took a photo of it. And I got all these comments about like how cool it was. This is the great thing about Instagram. A little pat on the back of like, oh, nice work. Keep that going. Yeah, so, I was going to reference that. It's, yeah. it's funny because when you mentioned, you know, found objects, I saw like a, a coaster and stuff like I, 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 Me personally, I, like, why don't I do that? I, I love that shit. Yeah, you but I, I love the way, you know, a lot of this stuff, it seems like it's it's must you know sometimes it must be spontaneous it, it has to be for me like anytime i've ever been like oh i'm gonna go make this next week like yeah it never gets me <laughs> you know what i mean i'm gonna go paint this thing or i'm gonna draw this thing oh that's a great idea i should do that sometime I, it doesn't work if i just start doing it, it it usually turns out okay like i'm pretty happy with it. that's why i've started just carrying a paint set with me because um i like the idea of painting in a restaurant <laughs> right. with a little glass of water like that to me is more appealing than trying to find a studio and like have a, a big easel and all right. stuff. Like, that stuff that's not as appealing to me so I was going to ask you what do you use, you use are you using acrylics or right now I'm in the... acrylics yeah I've never okay. really painted that much um, I painted when I was younger I've always been a pencil line mm-hmm. pen uh, sometimes markers kind of guy and then I went to sharpies and white out for the matte thing um, but this is the first time I've really gotten into color and mixing and uh it's harder than I realized, but it's also much more satisfying because it, it, it's really about layer, layering, which the map thing was really tricky because you couldn't, like, I, I would mess it up a lot, and I'd have to use whiteout to cover it up, and keeping everything into lines got a little stale for me at the end of it. So having this thing where you, you constantly are layering on top of layering and getting it better and better and better, and the more paint you put on, the better it looks to me. Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of the thing about painting that I forgot. You know? And uh, it's never... You can't really mess it up because if you mess up a bit of a splash, you just paint over paint it. Paint over it, right? And that that sort of element isn't that's not like that with pen and pencil. It tends to mark the paper too much. And so I don't know. I'm gonna roll with painting for a little while. <laughs> did you aspire at any point of your like teenage years to pursue art? Oh yeah, I did, I did AP art when I was in high school. I've always drawn. Did you for, go to architecture camp? I read that. I did somewhere. an architecture camp in tenth grade in Oakland. Uh, which was awesome, except that I broke my wrist right before we had to do the final project. <laughs> but uh, I almost went to pass. I did some stuff at Pasadena Art Center right. over the summer, and didn't catch my uh, attention enough. But uh, I did. The, probably the biggest thing was I, out of high school. I tried to get into UCLA Art School, and I didn't get in. And I 
think subconsciously that probably said, oh, you know what, music's more for you. you know? Right. It'd be really interesting to see what would have happened if I had gone done that. Well, at that point too, I mean, if you, st- you eighteen, your uh, your music career was already probably getting traction. We'd, we'd already been signed, so I knew I had to yeah. be in LA, all this kind of stuff. So UCLA was the only option in terms of a great art school mm-hmm. at that point for me, or or passing it. And um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what would happen if I'd gone. So any plans next for your art? I'm gonna roll with this painting thing for a little while. I want to get into some sculpture. Um, I, I've been collecting objects throughout this whole tour <laughs> that I keep wanting to build stuff out of um, and I haven't done it yet so I think I'm, when I get home I know I just said that I don't tend to do it and I probably won't but I, I do have a collection <laughs> of things I can turn into something at some point like what what's your what are you what are you finding on uh, like are you, are you creating a hassle hangers. for yourself to actually yeah. get back to LA? no it's all small <laughs> stuff uh, like you know the great weighted notepads that they have I want to like build an objects into it with screwdrivers and things like that um, I want to make a marble roller coaster I have a fascination with marble roller coasters um, mostly though I've been enjoying finding pieces of things to paint on in hotel rooms that's been like the thing that is getting me off right now any any plans for another show or oh any yeah for sure I think so I just need, a, I need enough work um, and as I'm doing the painting thing I'm, I'm getting better at it and starting to understand what I want to do with it so it may not be this year or this tour but if I can get enough stuff going on, I'll, I'll hopefully keep going when I get home. Very cool. Yeah. Well, uh, luckily there is Instagram, like I said, so we'll, 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 look, we'll look forward to uh, some some future posts. Yeah, Instagram's a great thing for artists, for sure. <laughs> um, all right, well, I can wrap it up. I wrap every show up with uh, the same five questions to every guest. Oh, okay. So, right, so let's, uh, I haven't heard these five questions, so. Good, good, good. Uh, first question is, if your house is on fire, yeah. your family is safe, Yeah. What you go back in to get that is of sentimental value and music related or career related? Um, my jazz bass. It's like from 1962. I've been playing it for forever, 15 years. Now, so cool. It's probably worth more than my car. <laughs> and it feels, I love it. Yeah. Probably that. Okay. Question two is if I was at liberty to give you a million dollars to give to one charity, which charity would you select? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, some sort of uh, teaching public school right. teachers. I don't, right. I don't know what do you, I don't even know what you say, say but. Uh, <laughs> I think the best thing is to go to a public school and just give teachers a huge raise huge for that raise. one year. <laughs> yeah, I would, I, would, I would give it all to teachers. Okay. Somewhere. That's good. That's a good one. Um, question three is, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? Probably a Beatles song. Uh, do I have to be specific? Uh, we can maybe Mother Nature's Son, maybe. All right, take that. Uh, if things turn for the worst, what would your uh, what would be stuck on repeat in hell? You go back. <laughs> Just the catalog, the whole thing. <laughs> Sorry, no offense. <laughs> now, have you ever have you ever opened for them or cross paths with them? No. Okay. Good no. thing. No. Um, and I'm sure they're lovely guys. I'm, I just meant strictly their music. I yeah. have no issues with the guys at all. It's just not my body. <laughs> okay, final question is, uh, best concert you've witnessed as a fan? In, live, in person? Yeah. Um, wow, that's a good one. Um, probably uh, Radiohead 1990, let me think, that would be OK Computer Tour. Yes. Will Turn Theater. I went with seven of my friends. and we have Is that big? Is, how big is Will Turn? About so kind thousand. of small? Okay. I mean, I mean, we were such enormous fans at that point, and they came out and started with Lucky, and it just freaked me out. I was like, what is this band? I think I think that's one of my answers. I think it was 
OK Computer, did they do, but I saw them in uh, Madison Square Garden, they had black and white screens, and the cameras were like on like his microphone, they were on the floor. No, that, that was later. That was later? Yeah, that was, I, I know that tour too, but this is um, this is right when they when OK Computer came out. OK. And it was, I, I don't even know if that, it hadn't fully caught on yet. Sure. And then, because after that, it was all, it was all over. Awesome. Well, I can't believe I couldn't summarize the teacher. <laughs> I think how do you say that? <laughs> a teacher's association charity. I don't care what it is. I just the feel na- like they don't get paid enough. That's all I was trying to say. <laughs> the National PTA. I yeah. guess that's Parent Teacher Association. Yeah. I think we get it. We get it. That, yeah, that's an interesting question, though, because no matter what you do, you're going to answer that wrong. There's just too many too many good charities to, to think about. Yeah. But, well, it's, it's a sad state of the world. There's, there's too much need you know, in every yeah. corner of the world. But Yeah. Well, I mean, you're part of this juggernaut that is Moon 5, and you took an hour out of your time. I really appreciate oh, course, you, yeah. you doing this. It's a lot of fun. It's a pleasure meeting you. Yeah, appreciate it. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. All right. Huge, huge thank you to Sam Farrar of Maroon 5, who was so gracious and accommodating with his time. Also for hooking me up at the show, which was great. I couldn't help but keep looking up at the people in the nosebleed seats and see them on their feet and dancing the entire time, which is a true testament to what a great live band they are. All right, you can keep up with Sam and see his artwork at samferrar.com and follow him on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Speaking of which, you can also follow the Rockonomics podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'd love to hear what you think of the show, so leave us a comment or question on either. We'll be back next Tuesday with a short but sweet episode with a guitarist whose first big break was because he had the right look. Kind of like the Johnny Bravo episode of The Brady Bunch, as he describes it. So please join us for that. Episode 40 has said all it is going to say. Good night, Cleveland. 